0: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Jeff Kripal, professor of philosophy and religious thought at Rice University. He is also the chairman of the board of the Esalen Institute. Jeff's work is far-ranging and touches upon, among many subjects, the study of comparative erotics and ethics in mystical literature. He is the author of a host of books, including Collie's Child and Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, But today I spoke with him about his book, Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religions, which I consider a must read for anyone interested in examining the various cultural and historical forces at play during the origins of the Esalen Institute. Jeff is an amazingly original thinker and such a powerful resource. He is also very honest, very candid. This is a good man, a cool dude. I hope that you'll enjoy a rambling discussion. Here's Jeff Kripal. Jeff Kripel, thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
0: I recently dug into your work, Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religions, and it was fantastic, fantastic read and a um, very useful overview for me uh, to understand the fabric that defines
1: Esalen. Right. Well, thanks. I, I always wonder who reads it. <laughs> you know, it's either a good book or a doorstop, so it's nice to know it was a good book for you. Um. Would you say that—is it fair to say that you're one of the foremost scholars of of Esalen history? Um, Well, that's for other people to say. There's really only been three books that I know of uh, written on Esalen now. And when I wrote that one, there was just one, Walt Anderson's Upstart Spring, which is a great book, actually. But, you know, it ends in about 1980. And so when I started uh, my own book— it was about two two thousand two thousand and one, so you know there was over two decades there and of course, I had a different approach than Walt did, so that's why i wrote I wrote the book for a, a number of reasons but but i um it's certainly one of three books on Esalen, I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, let's dive in a
0: little bit about what, what was it that drew you to Esalen that made you want to write kind of a comprehensive uh, intellectual and, and sociocultural history of it.
1: Okay, Well, that's, so that's a professional and a deeply personal question, but I'm, and I'm happy to answer both of them. That's most things at Esalen are. Um, so I was trained as a historian of religions, which most people would just translate as comparative religion. I was trained at the University of Chicago, and I was trained particularly to compare uh, Asian religions and Western religions. Um, Roman Catholicism and Hinduism happened to be my two areas of of interest. I came out of a Catholic uh, monastic context, actually. I wanted to be a monk. I was a seminarian at a Benedictine monastery. And I went to graduate school and became a, essentially a comparativist and end up writing a dissertation on the great uh, Hindu saint Ramakrishna, 19th century Hindu saint, who was extremely influential here in the 60s and 70s through a a book called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. And um, I I learned Bengali, which is what the text is written in. I lived in Calcutta for a school year, and I wrote this dissertation, which became my first book called Kali's Child. And essentially what Kali's Child did is it tracked... Um, the English translation of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, and showed how it had left a whole bunch of stuff out that was in the Bengali, and the stuff it left out or the stuff it spun was the tantric stuff, some of which was very sexual, very graphic, uh, and so I wrote about all of that, and it came out in 1995. That so that was my dissertation and first book, and it it became a kind of instant. Um, hit, as it were, in in academic circles, but it also attracted the almost immediate attention of the Hindu religious right, uh, which had had just come into power in, in India. They attempted to ban it, essentially. There were two national ban movements against the book in India, one in 97 and one in 2000, 2001, when I was teaching at Harvard. Both of those band movements technically failed, uh, went all the way up to Parliament, where it was voted down, but they practically succeeded. They, They essentially turned me into a kind of Salman Rushdie figure, and I became this sort of demonic, evil, Western colonialist. And really, if you read the book, it's actually very affectionate. It's, it, I love Ramakrishna. It's a it's it's an affectionate book, but they just didn't want anybody talking about sexuality and sainthood mm-hmm. at all. And there was a strong homoerotic current through the materials I was working with. And I was working with those as scholars work with them, you know, very descriptively, very appreciatively, no moral judgment whatsoever. Uh, in fact, a lot of the Catholic... Um, streams I had come from were similarly homoerotic, so it was very familiar familiar to me. And so I just wrote about it for about seven years, from about 97 to about 04 or so. I was the target of all of these, not just band movements, but all of these internet hate campaigns, um, particularly coming out of Silicon Valley with sort of right-wing uh, Hindu computer scientists who... Knew way more about the internet than I did, wow. and really came after me hard, and really ruined my name essentially in the Indian communities here. So uh, well, the reason I'm telling you this story is in the middle of this horrible, horrible experience, six, seven years of this. Uh, I mean, it was it, to tell you how bad it got when I moved to when I moved to Harvard in 2000. They of course saw that and ramped up all the hate campaigns because I was at Harvard. And then when I moved to Rice in 2002, they attempted to block my hire and then block my tenure. So these were, this was not, this was really serious stuff. It was really scary, it was really awful. And in the midst, the middle of that horrible experience of being the object of other people's hate campaigns, Mike read the book, Mike Murphy. He was in a San Rafael restaurant. It was the spring or early summer of 98. He he just loved the book like a lot of people. If you read the book, it, it's a you know a lot of it, it's a good book, and he particularly loved it because it was about this tantric tradition that uh, Sri Aurobindo also participated in, and so he recognized all of the tantric currents that I was writing about. Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo, was a Bengali like Ramakrishna, but lived in a later period. He died toward the middle of the last century. Ramakrishna died in uh, 18, uh, 86, I believe it was when he died. So anyway, Mike finished the book in this restaurant and was so excited. He called, um, he had a cell phone in the 98 and he called a, an operator and somehow found my name and he forgot about the three hour time difference. So it was like close to midnight when the phone rang and I didn't answer it. My wife answered it. And, she, of course, didn't know who Michael Murphy was. I actually recognized his name. I knew who he was because of what I do. And uh, and he was very excited. And But then he was very embarrassed because he realized that it was almost midnight. Um, and we just had a very brief, simple conversation. But he, he then sent me all of his books and, and invited me out here in November of 98. I remember it well because it was just after the baths had collapsed. The baths were... Original bass were, were were destroyed, and the bass were then up on that cliff uh, up near Rolf. Um, well, you can you can see the old ones. That's, that's where they were. Uh, and so it was November '98, and I kept coming back. I kept Mike kept inviting me back for CTR events. CTR had just been officially formed, and I realized at some point, and this is where it gets personal, that I could never go back to India, and that I really had to leave the study of Hinduism, which was extremely difficult. It took me years to get to that place because I had studied Indian languages for you know, 15 years and I was basically deciding to just walk away from all of that. And I realized that no one had written a book about Esalen or this zone for 20, 25 years. And that I could use all of my training as a scholar of Asian religions, and I could study and write about Esalen the way I had written about Ramakrishna. And I was pretty sure no one was going to persecute me for wanting to write about the things I wanted to write about here. Uh, and so that's actually why I wrote the book. I actually wrote the book to survive uh, um, intellectually and spiritually. And... Uh, it was not, and it was not just another academic project. It was a way to redefine myself and uh, stay alive uh, intellectually and spiritually.
0: Well, I'm assuming that there was something about the Esalen Institute as you experienced it that signified a kind of path of rebirth or a path that there was something special about it.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, that's an understatement. Uh, You know, it's for those of us who who either live here or are um who come here a lot it's easy to forget you know that first visit and and what an impact it can make on somebody uh, the land and the community and and just the the power of the place as a kind of pilgrimage spot um but on on top of all that sort of just being awed by all of that there was an immediate kind of intellectual and spiritual hit for me because i recognized instantly, that there was this sort of uh, tantric lineage, um, through Mike at least, into the place. And I, I recognized that was just part of the, the lineage. There was a lot more going on. But at least I had a way to sort of tap into one stream of this river that was flowing. And so it gave me a kind of um, uh, existential connection to the place that I might not have otherwise had. I want
0: to talk to you a little bit about, because you're a historian... What was going on culturally during the early 1960s, and perhaps a little bit before, that made it possible for a place like Esalen to be founded? I thought maybe we could start off by taking a look at what was going on in the the, the field of psychology.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, the kinds of streams that flowed into Esalen were not new; they they had been flowing through American culture for a long time. Most historians would point back to mid-19th century Boston as kind of the an, an effective origin point. So transcendentalism, uh, Emerson, the focus on nature, the focus on Asian uh, religion, Walt Whitman, these sorts of ecstatic kind of natural mystical currents that were extremely progressive and extremely provocative in the middle of the 19th century. Eselin sort of um, picks up on a lot of that, but adds the very important piece of modern psychology and, and modern science. Um, there, this was this was a point in time in American culture where there was a kind of euphoric uh, interest in psychology as a kind of science of the mind or the soul that was going to like refigure everything. We could like now figure out what religion has always been about, you know what. What art has always been about—it was a kind of master key. It all went. It all went back to the psyche, you know, whatever whatever that is or whatever that was. But it, it it promised this, and there were still great kind of great sort of iconic figures in place, people like Freud and and Carl Jung, and and right on the horizon, uh, a Baslow, who who was trying to create a new psychology that was based on what he called self-actualization and peak experiences. Fre- Freud's psychology was, was dominant at this point. Psychoanalysis was dominant. Um, but it, was, it had very much wedded itself to a kind of materialism, deep materialism, and a kind of sense that religion was, was childish and, and fantasy. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of evidence for that, um, but but American psychoanalysis in the 1950s would have not been friendly at all to what was going this place at all. Jungian psychology is another matter. You, the Jungian uh, the Jungians would have been. Uh, they weren't particularly influential here, but 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 that was sort of the wing that would have been. But it was really humanistic psychology and Maslow, and then Pearls, and then Gestalt, uh, and then. Groff, uh, who, who sort of combines Freudian and Jungian currents that really take off here in the 60s and 70s. So it's a really complex. And I think the reason psychology was so exciting to people is it combined science and spirit, or at least that was the, the intuition. It wasn't just science. It was science trying to look at spirit or psyche or soul or if you want to be secular or reductive about it, mind or cognition. Uh, and there were very reductive models, like B.F. Skinner, for example. But that's, those are not the people that became dominant here. Was it
0: coincidence,
1: or was it a plan
0: that uh, a leader like Fritz Perls and his Gestalt technique became
1: kind of the overarching dominant model here at Esalen? I mean, a, a historian couldn't answer that. You know that's not a historical question. It's it's, um, but it's a good question. Pearls comes a little later, you know, and pearls doesn't is not well received early on. Uh, he's a he's a controversial figure. He's a difficult figure. He's at the end of his life, so he's he's suffering probably, and he's a bit grumpy. But he's also extremely charismatic and extremely insightful. You
0: you write in your book about. Uh, Fritz Perls, his whole life having kind of a chip on his shoulder to, to Freudianism.
1: Yes, yes, he was. He had a difficult relationship to the psychoanalytic community. So he was very much, he, he drew from Freud but was also very much poised against Freud. But I think the bottom line with Perls is he just, he had a, a, an, an almost uncanny ability to read people very, very quickly. And he had a very dramatic Technique, you know, this hot seat and a group, so there was a kind of performance quality to this. This wasn't, this wasn't an analyst and an analyzant in a private office on a couch that nobody else participated. In. This was a stage performance in some sense, and so I think that's one of the many reasons it just was really effective here because it was really a community that was doing the therapy, not just an individual and, a, and, a, and an expert, as it were. Yeah, I thought about that element a lot
0: as I read your book. And it seems there's an element of drama. There's an element of wanting to take what had been in the in the dark, bring it out to light in some fashion that's uh, almost acrobatic. I'm wondering if you could give some perspective on that, because that's not exactly that the, the way that things are now.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I was born in 62. So when I speak about these things, I'm speaking as a historian, not as someone who is there. However... When I was in college or the seminary in the 70s, they were very much doing all this encounter group stuff. So I experienced it. I know what it's like, and I know um, sort of what um, the history of it is. And essentially the history is this. In the 50s, the 60s happened because of the 50s. The 50s were a kind of lockdown on the emotions. Uh, you didn't express your emotions. You had, you had cultural movements like McCarthyism, you know, going after um, intellectuals and screenwriters and, and, and people interested in these ideas. You had a war going on. You, you had a nuclear uh, armament, you know, being built up. I mean, this were, you ha- even when I was a kid, you had bomb, ra- bomb raid uh, uh, things where, you know, you got under your desk and covered your head as if that was going to protect you from being vaporized by a nuclear bomb. It was ridiculous <laughs> looking back on. But it was, what I'm trying to say, it was an era of fear and an era of, of fantastic conservatism, you know, and and clampdown. And so the 60s was this, the reason I think in many ways it was so powerful is it was, it was so um, uh, cathartic. And, and expressing one's emotions and exploring one's emotions and exploring one's relationships in a public setting was just so not what was done. And so it was very powerful. You know, when you cross a taboo, it's powerful. Um, and I think that was a lot of the excitement. And, and uh, then what happens, of course, also is then you mix in the, the whole psychedelic stew into that. Mm. And you just get this rocket. That that takes off and often crashes, but it there's there's some there's all kinds of things going on there. The the, the psychedelic story is a long one, and, and and I'm not an expert on it, but I had to interact with it a lot to write this book. And what's so interesting about the psychedelic story is that it's really a story about intellectuals and scientists. You know, you don't get the psychedelic movement without pharmaceutical companies and professional intellectuals in universities and hospitals. What, what essentially happens is human beings, of course, have been using psychoactive plants for forever, um, but certainly not in the U.S. And Albert Hoffman synthesizes this incredibly powerful substance looking, you know, for a pharmaceutical. He wasn't looking for it. And he accidentally doses himself and he has this famous a bicycle ride, but then what happens is um, actually um, Freudians uh, and doctors and um, psychoanalysts decide that it might be useful to give this new substance to to uh, medical students um, so that they can see what a psychosis is like from from the inside. That was re- that was the reasoning actually, and then when the Americans got a hold of it they gave it to hospitals, universities, and they funded all kinds of studies to figure out whether it could be used for medical reasons or military reasons or or whatever. And basically what happened was the intellectuals and the scientists got a hold of this stuff and they figured out really quickly that it was extremely powerful and they started to use it on themselves. Recreationally. Or to create, uh, like... Huxley, for example, Aldous Huxley, um, are always argued against recreational use of, of, uh, LSD or masculine. He was, he was the counter voice. Uh, he did not like Tim Leary's approach to this. He knew Leary really, they were friends, but he completely disagreed with Leary on this one. He felt they were too powerful. And they could be used to create art or literature or, 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 or thought itself. You could, you could do things with it, but you had to use it in a controlled setting and you had to know what you were doing and you had to control the stuff. You couldn't release it into the public uh, because it would, there would be an immediate backlash. He, he feared a, a legal um, political backlash, which of course is exactly what happened. Um, Leary felt the other that it was too it was too good, it was too powerful. It had to be given to the people, as it were, and so release it into the bloodstream, as it were, of the culture. And this is the Ken Casey position, of course, too. Uh, and so you had this you you had this 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 debate going on with these folks. But but what's so interesting to me as a historian is it it gets released into the bloodstream of the culture through the intellectuals and the scientists mm. it isn't just it isn't doesn't just appear and even someone like gordon wasson who was so influential in the 50s with this he's a, he's a banker <laughs> these these are these aren't the people you expect to to uh, you know invent the psychedelic culture essentially but that's who did it actually um, and then what happens is people like leary and huxley they almost immediately associate the psychedelic states with Asian religions. And so you have this really interesting, what I call psychedelic Orientalism that gets created in the 60s. In other words, you start to read the Hindu and Buddhist texts through the psychedelic states, and you're reading the psychedelic states through the Hindu and Buddhist texts, and they sort of generate one another in the 60s. Where does
0: esalen come in? Is is psychedelics already very much a figure in the national consciousness when it, it comes into Eslin's field, or is it sort of Esselin a disseminator?
1: No, no, Esalen inherits that. The, the very first uh, workshops um, are on things uh, like drug, drug-induced mysticism, I think was the phrase in one of the early, very first brochures. And you have to remember, at this time, it was totally legal, so the crisis was not a legal one it was a theological crisis and by that i mean what was being debated at eslin and in other places like with huxley and a and a british scholar named Marcy Zayner. what they were really debating was can you really experience god by ingesting a mushroom or a much less a man made chemical substance that just seemed outrageous to the Kind of traditional religious heritages that had been passed on, but it looked like you could, you know, and maybe and you may well can. So, so it, it created this sort of theological crisis, and that's what they were debating in the early sixties. They were not debating is it legal or not, or what should we, you know. They were debating is this a God, and if this is God, what
0: does that mean? I'm assuming that the. The climate at Esalen uh, in regards to psychedelics probably changed quite a bit from its inception 1961-62 to the period where America is really getting uh, a full kind of uh, exposure to psychedelics with 67-68.
1: Then of course it becomes very legally dangerous in the 70s and the 80s and a uh, Esalen has to respond in, in very different ways than, you know, the, the, legal, the legal context changes dramatically mm-hmm. in the late 60s and early 70s. Well, there's
0: a passage in your book with uh, Michael Murphy realizing that Eslin was being investigated by the Food and Drug Administration. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mike took a very proactive approach to this. And I, I suspect if he didn't, there wouldn't be an Esalen right now. Uh, because, of course, drug use was prominent. And um, there were a lot of busts going on. And Mike and Dick both feared these legal uh, actions, and so Mike just went right to the FDA and basically said, "You know, what, what do we do? You know, how do we, how do we stay open?" Essentially, and they basically invoked the Constitution and said, "Well, you, you know, there's this constitutional uh, right for a hotel or, or, I guess, innkeepers in, the, in constitutional language." that the government cannot bust into a, an inn and yank out people staying at your inn. I mean, It was originally probably designed against the British who were doing that. And so when the framers of the Constitution wrote the Constitution, they wanted to protect innkeepers mm-hmm. against this kind of basically invasion. And the basic law is an innkeeper is not responsible for what goes on in the rooms of the inn. He or she is responsible for what goes on in public spaces of the inn. And so that became the, um, the distinction. Mm-hmm. You, you, you don't break into people's rooms. You don't, you don't tell people what to do or what not to do in their rooms. But you don't allow public programs uh, yeah. that use these substances. And you don't host public events that such substances are encouraged or, or used openly because then you are you you're open you're wide open to to legal action. So that that was the distinction. And and it you know it seemed to work. Let's talk a little
0: bit about the uh, intellectual and literary currents that were happening during the early 1960s and mid 1960s during Eslin's uh, early days. I guess I wanted to float
1: the the beat generation towards you and see what you had to say. Well, <clears throat> George Leonard used to say that you know, when all is said and done, the human potential movement, they'll look back and see it as a literary movement, primarily. Uh, you know, that's an exaggeration, but I, there's a lot of truth to it. What does it mean? Well, it means that the people who really founded the human potential movement were writers. They were first and foremost writers. And even the therapists and the early body workers, they all wrote, you know, and these are how these books, these are how these ideas were disseminated. There's no internet, right? Um, people read books. They actually read books. And and this is how you got your ideas out there. The folks who really shaped the ideas that become the human potential movement um, are people like... Well, the Beat Poets were, of course, a collection of poets that had turn, turned primarily to Buddhism for, for inspiration. And they had... Um, I mean, there were many of them, and they were all very different... But they had sort of taken on Alan Watts as their their kind of resident guru, and and Watts was a a, a fascinating, um, brilliant speaker and writer, uh, and had a genius for expressing ba- Buddhist and 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 Taoist ideas in a kind of English um, humor. And, and and elegance that that was extremely convincing and and very attractive to these people, and so you get this fusion of American poets and Buddhism through that. And some of these B poets, people like Ginsberg, for example, had had profound mystical experiences reading poetry, and 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 then converted to Buddhism. They were also proposing or propounding basic Hindu practices, but they were also getting into huge legal trouble um, because the pornography or the the, the laws around uh, how you could express uh, sexuality in literature were, were not hadn't been fought out yet. And so someone like Henry Miller down the road here, you know, he used to joke if he wanted to buy his books, you had to go to the to where the shipments come in because they'd all been confiscated and they were all in these warehouses. So he, he was just banned all over the place. And Ginsburg was like that. Howell, it was Howell, was his his great poem. And uh, censorship campaigns against it were, were extreme. Uh, but those battles were fought and won. And so that's another thing that produces the 60s is you can now... Express yourself in a way around sexuality that you actually would have been jailed before before that, uh, and and we don't realize that you know with the internet and we're, we're we're kind of spoiled here. But I mean, you could be jailed. There were postal laws if you sent literature through the mail on things like uh, birth control or something. You could be j- you you could be jailed for that because you were distributing pornographic materials. What I'm trying to get at here. Is, was
0: Esalen kind of a product of the 60s or was it something that was going to come into uh, existence no matter what and just profoundly influenced by the cultural developments that were happening?
1: You know, it's, it's, I don't, it's a great question. You know, when, uh, when I wrote the book in '07, and uh, a, a Houston family gave the press a little chunk of money and sent me on a book tour. And so I went all up and down this coast and, and through the Midwest and, and just a little out east. By the way, if you want to be humbled, go on a book tour. It's extremely humbling. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the couple dozen people I spoke to, uh, the the question they always asked, this is 07 now, so this is in the middle of the Bush years. The question they always asked was, how do we do this again? How do we get this thing going again? In other words, not just Esalen, but the whole thing. And my answer which wasn't much of an answer, but it's all I got was that it's not up to you, actually. An idea is an idea that's waiting for the right cultural or social moment. And what you have to understand about early Esalen is that none of the ideas were new. The, the ideas had been floating in the culture and in these writers' lives for sometimes decades. But nobody was listening. And in the early 60s, you then have this youth culture that suddenly is listening. And so the youth culture embraces these older intellectuals and these older writers and takes their ideas and runs with them. And so now the writers have a youth culture and the youth culture have a writer. And it's this magical alchemy that creates this movement. There was a kind of serendipity here. There was a kind of uh, massive synchronicity between what Mike and Dick wanted to do, and what the culture was ready for, mm. uh, and I think that's that's why you get that. So to answer your question, Esland certainly did not produce the counterculture by any stretch of the imagination, but they it happened to it happened to get going right as that was happening. Counterculture is a little later, sixty four, somewhere in there, um, and then then they become synergistic, but but one didn't produce the other. When you say the counterculture is a little bit later, are you talking about the civil rights and anti-war? Yeah, 62, you know, things aren't really revving up. You know, you really, it's later. You know, Martin Luther King and, and the Kennedy assassination. Of course, the Vietnam War is a huge issue here. Uh, that comes later. And a lot of the, the psychedelic and the music culture, that explodes as well a little later. So you're... You, you you just you're just getting going as an institution, and then this cultural thing explodes. We're just down the road, actually, right in in the Bay Area and Monterey. So it's well, it's not only well timed, it's well placed. Was there
0: a sense that Eslin was somewhat isolationist? I mean, it it is here in Big Sur. It's San Francisco is just down the road, but it's a it's a long, windy, treacherous road because I, 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 I've never really heard about. How the anti-war movement landed here at, at Esalen?
1: That the anti-war movement, in my uh, historical reading, is much more located in Berkeley. The interests here were much more sort of east-west, sort of philosophical um, body work. It, it wasn't it, early on. It wasn't political activism, like no, you're it talking was more about. Personal yes, activism. yes, it was. Later the political activism comes in, in particularly the Russian-American projects that started in the 70s. But again, that's a little later. Let let me say one more thing there, Sam. Mike talks a lot about the outlaw country. And when the place was started, you know, like sheriffs would barely come up here or down here, whatever metaphor you want to use. And I think that isolation served it well. You know, you come to... The outlaw country, so to speak, to do things that are not maybe illegal, but are outside the cultural norms. It gives you a, a space to to transcend your own culture, as it were. Which are these things would be hard to do in, say, Kansas uh, in in 1962. John Hyder, a longtime resident, wrote a, actually a wonderful novel called I think it was Living in Paradox. That's what it's called. Never published. But basically, what John did is that he imagined what Esalen would be like if it was founded in Kansas. And <laughs> he's a very funny man. Uh, and of course, it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's funny that you bring up
0: John Hyder because I had a, a quote here that I was going to, to bring up. In September 1967, Esalen seemed a paradise of permission, opportunity, beauty, and truth. By February 1971, both I and the Institute seemed older and weary, jaded by too many miracles too quickly digested
1: It had been going nine years then, you know, and like a lot of like a lot of utopian or charismatic communities you expect you expect utopia you know, and then when it doesn't happen, then you've got to kind of re, re, regroup as it were well, this
0: is endemic of the the hippie movement yeah. of, as a whole.
1: By it? 71 there were serious holes and crises in the hippie movement <laughs> I, I mean the Manson murders are often pointed to as the, the sort of the end mm. of, of the counterculture. I think that's again an exaggeration but there's something to that it was deeply symbolic
0: Well let's back up just a second I, it took us to 71 before getting to the what, what happens when Esalen finally is uh, kind of taken out of its isolationist beauty and people start writing about it
1: well a lot it depends on it depends on <laughs> who writes what of course i I mean there were hundreds if not thousands of media pieces on Eslin uh and there were a few very very good ones um but it it really becomes famous i mean it it becomes um maybe not like Hate Ashbury or Berkeley, but it becomes one of the nodes of this counterculture and it's where it's where you want to go if you're your age, as opposed to my age at the moment, um, you know. So George Harrison lands here with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi on on the front lawn in a helicopter. I mean, you don't. So it it's got cultural cachet at mm-hmm. that point. There's an interesting description
0: uh, in your book. I believe it's in your book and not the Upstart Spring, which describes uh, Hollywood actresses and actors coming here and Natalie Wood yeah. taking part in some sort of encounter
1: group I, I think that story it's, it's been a while since i read that but i think that was actually a party in hollywood that esalen figures were invited to okay and i think fritz Perls was the <laughs> was the show there spanking natalie wood mm. on some gestalt gestalt <laughs> session um i know george leonard was there and i think i think mike was there too but yeah i think that's the hollywood party okay
0: there's another yeah. passage in your book which describes
1: Fritz Perls smacking Carlos Castaneda? Right, right. What was the occasion? Well, okay, so Perls was a... He referred to Mike's interest in mysticism as the mud of occultism, you know, which is actually how Freud... um, He got it from Freud. That's what he said. He got that from Freud, who was talking about Jung. Um, But but anyway, Pearls was extremely skeptical of all of these ideas about the mystical and and the occult and the metaphysical. And and there was all the things Mike was interested in. Uh, And when he heard Carlos Castillo, who was just an anthropology, he was another another academic, by the way. He was an anthropology student. Uh, And this was before he had published the book. Yeah, that was 68 or so when the first Carlos Castaneda book came out. And this was much before that. And he was telling these stories about meeting this shaman. And uh, Pearls didn't believe any of it. You know, he just thought he was lying. And so he slapped him. Um, that's a typical Fritz Pearl story. Th- those currents have been very strong here, the mystical currents. But there have often been a lot of um, uh, counter voices to that and and a kind of insistence on the mat- just the material world or, or just the body or, or, or opening up or down into the body but, but refusing or resisting anything outside it now that you, you, you speak of the body
0: how radical was it for Esalen to be a center of somatic exploration including the notorious
1: baths or massage therapy with nude practitioners if you didn't express your emotions in the 50s, you sure in the hell didn't get naked and sit in hot water with other people, right? And you certainly didn't let anybody touch you to whom you were not married. That's radical stuff. And the the ideas that were floating around here, still float around here, do more than float, it wasn't just a matter of touching or massage or, 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 or the baths. It was that... There's something um deeply mysterious and wonderful about the body that the body stores emotion and memory and and wisdom in a way that we haven't really accessed because we're so we're so removed from it. And there were also really powerful, this is where Freud, the Freudian streams were so important here, not through Freud, but through Reich, Wilhelm Reich and his disciples, who who really saw this. Orgone, this, this libidinal sexual cosmic energy in the body is the secret of all health and happiness. And for Reich, at least, orgone was was literal. It, it, it wasn't a metaphor. There really was orgone in the stars, in the trees, in our bodies, and it manifested most powerfully in our sexualities and our emotional life. And the, the whole point of Reichian. Body work or Reiki in therapy was to get it flowing, to remove the blocks or what he called the body armor. That's heretical, even with respect to psychoanalysis. You've got a series of heresies going on here that that land in some of their most extreme forms here at Esalen, and then they became they become kind of the norm. Mm. Um, so I think I think somatics at Esalen is really uh, there's a lot of streams coming into it as well that are often very, very rich and, and, and very, very complicated.
0: Was there a point at which it became less edgy or what what exactly happened
1: as as it evolved? Well, so a number of things happened. First of all, the baby boomers grew up, (laughs) you know, it's one thing to be edgy at 24. It's another thing to be edgy at 34 or 44, right? Um, you need a job, you know, you have children and you have to figure out how do we raise the children, mm-hmm. you know, until your, your values begin to change and the culture that you originally were countering or resisting, you now have to become a part of to, to effectively raise the children. Mm-hmm. So I think that's happening in the 70s and 80s. I also think some of the promises are wear and thin, you know, some of the quick promises of utopia on Earth. The psychedelic stuff, the crashes as well as the flights are now obvious to people. You know, there's a lot of... They're victims as well as uh, heroes of that now. Uh, so, so people are starting to see that. that the, the, the drug war, not yet called the drug war, is starting. These things are illegal, or a lot of them are illegal. Um, there are suicides, you know, on campus, there are people who are killing themselves. Not a lot, but just enough that it's disturbing. Um, so there are there are challenges, and um, and the culture itself is changing. You know, as you move from the sixties into the seventies, which is when I came into uh, early adulthood, the values are changing. You know, disco is not. Uh, Jimi hendrix and um, certainly by the time you get to the 80s you get this kind of this is me now this is it's kind of a grotesque um, materialism kicks in mm-hmm. and you get the aids crisis where countless people are dying of some disease we don't understand and so the sexual revolution in the 80s becomes deeply suspect And so, and Eslin's having to settle down and trying to figure out how how to survive long term. The other thing you have to understand is that early Eslin had almost no employees, you know, and operated on a shoestring and uh, little little or few legal concerns or insurance concerns or health care. I mean, on and on and on. You know, the early photos, you are what, five employees? And I, God only knows what they were getting paid, you know, probably almost nothing. Uh, and so, you know, by the 80s and 90s, you know, the, the, the staff and, and, and the administration are growing because they have to. The income has to increase. And, you know, it's just it's the nature of any institution that, that is going to mature. If it's going to survive, it has to develop the structures that allow institutions to survive in, in a particular culture. I'm curious how
0: it evolved intellectually, because it seemed like there was great food for thought during the the '60s, as as the world of psychology becomes more geared towards humanistic
1: psychology, and the obviously the East meets West. I think I think the interests and the the interests grow and shift and change. I think in the '70s, those are no longer as hot. In the '70s, you've got Stan Grof living here and you've got a whole Grafian world developing. But you also have the be- the beginning and really explosion of citizen diplomacy and American-Russian uh, uh, projects, originally all around parapsychology, more or less, but then they develop into, into citizen diplomacy during really the nadir of the Cold War, which I remember intensely. I mean, we were looking at nuclear holocaust with thousands or tens tens of thousands of of uh, nuclear missiles uh, just taking out the entire northern hemisphere that's really what we were looking at so they were trying to address that and and then on the ground here also the physics of consciousness became very big with uh, Fritjof-Copra and uh, later um, uh, a whole bevy of of what uh, David Kaiser is called hippie physicists who we're meeting here and and really exploring a lot of really interesting ideas around physics and consciousness. So it it, it, it takes off in different ways. Yes. That's all in the seventies, by the way. Okay. So Groff, I mean, he you know he starts out in, in in Czechoslovakia as a classical Freudian psychoanalyst, and by that I mean totally reductive, complete materialist. And um, he was one of the young uh, medical students to whom they gave LSD to try to imitate a psychosis. And the way Stan tells the story, instead of uh, psychosis, he sees God, basically, and it just flips his world, just flips him. And he becomes fascinated in, in, in LSD research, which, and he's really the lead researcher there in, in the 60s. And then there, the communists uh, roll in to Czechoslovakia and 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 basically take over the country and Stan decides to stay in the U.S. at that point as a political exile. And he meets Mike um, at some event out east. He was at Johns Hopkins, I believe, is where he was. Uh, and Mike invites him out here and he comes out 70, 71, somewhere in there. And he ends up staying for 14 years. And so he becomes a real part of the community and a part of the whole intellectual atmosphere. And, you know, he's interested in, of course, LSD and psychedelics, but they're now illegal. And so he has to develop some other way of getting people into altered states. And he develops this holotropic breath work, you know, as, a, as essentially as a really as a response to the legal, the legal situation, I think. But it ends up working as well. And and uh, he takes off and 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 does that still doing that, you know, to this day. We do that. I mean, I have a, my best friends in Houston are part of that holotropic breathwork community. So it, it's pretty much everywhere now. But what's interesting, when I when I wrote the book, uh, there's a whole chapter just on Stan Groff in it, because I was so fascinated with his material. What I find so interesting about Groff is if you know something about the history of psychology, what you recognize reading Stan is that he's very, very Freudian, but he's also very, very Jungian, which you rarely see. You usually see people who are just Freudian or just Jungian, but you don't see someone who's integrating them the way. And he's he's Freudian in the sense that, you know, he he believes and has written that a lot of LSD trips and holotropic trips are about reliving the the birth canal you know and the traumas of birth and all of these perinatal matrices that we we allegedly go through that's so freudian you know that's so freudian it's sort of more freud than freud was because it's taking it back in you know before birth um But then you know all of his stuff on on a kind of mind at large and and a, and a kind of archetypal way of looking at these things very Jungian, very non-reductive, very interested in mystical states and and what happens to us when we die and all of that. So so I was really fascinated by by Groff's work, um, and he was a big part big big part of 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 Esalen in the seventies. He. he 70, 71 to about 84, somewhere in there.
0: Well, good. Thank you so much, Jeff Kripal. Thanks for your foundational work, Esalen, America, and the Religion of No Religions. I really appreciated speaking with you about the the history and the fabric that kind of underwrites this amazing institution. I'm
1: just thrilled you read the book, Sam. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for reading me. All right.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. You can find us on iTunes or at the Esalen website. That's E-S-A-L-E-N dot O-R-G. Today's music is by Christian Bjorklund. The track is Howlin'. That's it. Until next time, be well.